arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Now the truth, Mrs. Belfour. Did you not kill your husband? Yes! Yes! <laughs> you didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Matt Thompson! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! I killed a big gas bag. That was the theme from the great Perry Mason starring Raymond Burr. Perry Mason did not lose a case and was always noted for dramatic endings. Funeral March for the Maestro does not end in a courtroom, but ends in a rather different setting as Jones confronts the killer. Arnie and Bucky bother Jones before an inter-squad scrimmage game for Jones' baseball camp. Arnie later finds trouble on the beach during the end of the season baseball camp bash. But an even more bizarre scenario takes place near the Outback Club involving Bucky Driscoll. A drunk Mick Dumas is furious because of Jones' investigation. Later, Jones is at Club Max during the day with Sid Smoltz, and Sid Smoltz and Coco clash. Coco has no tolerance for Sid Smoltz. Along the river to the bay to Canal Street, Jones and Sid Smoltz are looking for answers. Back in the jail cell, Lark still feels like he is doomed. In a meeting between Jones, Sid Smoltz, and Mayor Picotta, important information is brought forward about Steve Corbett maneuvering Lenore Picotta to the conservatory at the time of the murder. The showdown at the end is one of the more precarious endings for the whole Jones series. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the incredible ending of Episode 4 and Funeral March for the Maestro by Robert P. Fitton, beginning right now. Funeral March for the Maestro, Chapter 17. Thias, you look tired, said Mac. A strong wind gusted across the field and whipped Jones's hair back. The Bisbanes have ruined my house, Mac, and I've been trying to track down Noosebaum's murderer. Yeah, I'm tired. If I was lucky, twice as nice would leave town. I mean luck in the murder investigation. I have a few leads. Bucky Driscoll and Arnie Doers jaunted across the athletic fields near the gym. Oh no, here comes trouble. Mac, would you get the game going? I'm going to nip these guys in the bud. Sure, good luck. I'll need it. Arnie carried several books under his arm and blabbed to Bucky as they marched toward the baseball field. Jones opened the small chain-link gate and cupped his hand. Frickin' frack! Arnie's head snapped up. Matthias! Arnie! Matthias, I've been looking for you! You mean I've actually managed to avoid you? 
What was that? asked Arnie. You ready for the big beach bash? The boys are looking forward to it. Arnie pushed the books into his ribs. You don't want to kick in any bucks for it, do you? This is your baby, Arnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the girls from the office working with Sal at the beach, he said, turning toward Bucky. I'm an expert accountant. The bash is still all tax deductible. Why all the books, Arnie? asked Jones as they stopped near the back of the bleachers. Bucky pointed and squinted in the bright sun. While well, you've been gallivanting around, we've made some great headroads. You mean inroads, huh? What do you have? Well, we've got proof. That's right, specific instances where dogs have been taught to do human things, said Bucky, moving closer. His cologne was potent and cheap. Do you know they taught dogs to drive cars in Alabama? Yeah, that's real great, Bucky. Yeah, right, said Arnie, setting the books in Bucky's extended arms. The breeze flipped back the pages of a large picture book to a glossy page marked with a wrapped fruity gum stick. A colored, two-page photo showed a golden retriever in front of a computer monitor and keyboard. There! There's proof, Matthias! Proof of what? There's proof. Proof of what? The dog! What are you, blind? They trained the dog to run the computer! Jones moved closer and Arnie elbowed his side. To get the bifocals, huh? I don't use bifocals, said Jones, reading the side paragraph. Don't worry, I'll cover for you. Tough growing old. I don't have glasses, Arnie. How old are you? asked Bucky. I heard you lied on your resume. Jones looked up and held his index finger parallel to his thumb. Bucky, I'm about this far from clipping your wings. Ah, you better listen to us, said Bucky. Nussbaum's dog shot him. Oh, really? he asked, crossing his arms. And how did the dog do that? Two crime scenarios. Said dog accidentally discharged the firearm, or... Or the dog was under instructions, said Arnie, lighting a cigarette. Jones brushed away the smoke. See how that golden booted up the computer? He runs it. Jones shook his head. The dog pushes the mouse when prompted, Arnie. He doesn't run the computer. Yeah, well, you can teach a dog to shoot a gun, right, Buck? Bucky knows ballistics. Bucky smirked and held his gun belt. Yeah, well, this guy's taking ballistic and firearms courses. What guy? Me. Oh, that's nice. Listen, I have to get back. My boys are waiting. Bucky grabbed his arm. See, you signed up for this correspondence material. We have an intra-squad scrimmage game. Matthias, can you get us in the music place back there? Asked Arnie. I don't know, Arnie. I don't know, he says, said Bucky, turning down his lips. Don't push me, Bucky. I'll see what I can do, said Jones, and he started back to the playing field. You're right, Arnie. He is touchy. Very touchy. Arnie called out from behind. Well, can you get us in, or should we call the TV station in Prince William? I'll see what I can do, Arnie. Jones inhaled slowly and kept walking, but he repeatedly thought about Arnie's dog theory. He shook his head rapidly in order to get Arnie's annoying voice out of his thoughts, but he compulsively was drawn to the round shake at conservatory. Having the dog actually trained to fire a weapon would take a concerted regimen and effort. He opened the gate and moved toward the bench as one of the boys grounded into a double play. Good execution, good throw. Hey, these boys look great, said Mac. Amazing what fundamentals will do, Mac. He said, looking at the conservatory stone facade.
Right. You learn the basics one by one and it all adds up. Jones nodded and stared at the window. That is the ticket, McMack. What do you mean? I've been approaching this investigation all wrong, looking for suspects in proximity. That's all important, but I'm overlooking the basics. Like inside the conservatory, I'm worrying about who did it instead of how it was done. Jones drove a few of the boys in the Jeep and Mac followed in the red and white athletic department van. The rest of the squad was packed into Arnie's large lumber truck. He pulled to the end of Shore Drive at the flashing yellow light bordering the beach. The breakers broke sharply along Hamilton Bay as he waved at one of the young attendants admitting vehicles into the parking lot. Arnie beeped the blaring horn several times as he spun dangerously into the parking lot. The huge Dewar's truck tires humped over the cement curb near the beach wall. Jones pulled the jeep alongside the truck. Hey, Arnie, you're over the curb. Yeah, 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 shouted Arnie up in the truck, cigarette planted in the corner of his mouth. The edges of the green and white tents set up along the cabanas flapped in the wind gusts near the first frame lifeguard chair. Near the beach wall, Sal and several people from his beachside restaurant stuffed briquettes into the large metal grill as the sound of the breaking waves cut the stiff shore breezes. We'd better be careful swimming in here today. Ah, the higher the waves, the better, said Arnie. I've been riding these waves since I was a kid. Jones pressed his lips and walked by Arnie to the lifeguards atop the lifeguard tower. He recognized the kid from the college. Hey, Josh, how's the surf? Not good, coach. I asked your boys to stay on the beach. Possible riptides. Jones spoke over the crashing waves. I thought so. There's a big storm near Virginia. We're getting the surf. I'll keep the boys out. The smell of gasoline doused on the burning briquettes whipped the thick, quickly dissipating black smoke into the air. A few people sunbathed along the sands, while others hiked far down along the horseshoe-shaped shore. What's the story with the surf? asked Mac. Nobody goes in. Let me make the announcement. Jones crossed the asphalt. He reached the sand where the boys were tossing foam footballs and high-sailing bright-colored darts. He blew his brass whistle and they all turned. He yelled over the shore wind. I've been advised that the surf is too high for swimming. Well, that's a smart move, said the large-framed Sal at the grill. I'm having trouble just keeping the fire going here. Can we swim at all, coach? Sorry, boys. Everyone's confined to the beach. Sal's hamburgers sizzled on the grill. You want to move everything back in the restaurant, Sal? No, we should be all right. We just nix the paper plates and throw these babies in a roll and hand them to the kids. Sure, said Jones as the sand whipped his face. Hard to believe a storm in Virginia is causing trouble up here. Well, let's hope it goes out to sea. I lose money every time we get rain during the summer. Arnie says you're writing the check. No, no, no. The invoice goes to Dewar's Lumber. Sal grinned. I thought so. Need any help with anything? No, we're okay. So you had a good camp, asked Sal, flipping the burgers. Yeah, the boys learned a lot of basic skills. Good, good. Too bad your boys can't get some swim time. Sal, you'd have to be a stupid idiot to be swimming today, said Jones, turning to his right. Arnie Dewars had just stripped down to his bright green swim trunks and waded into the breakers. What the hell is he doing now? Hey, that's Arnie Dewars, said Sal. Arnie dove into the crashing waves and Josh immediately sounded his whistle. He's going to get himself killed. You better do something, Matthias. Jones stared down the beach. I don't believe it. Are you just going to let him swim into harm's way? 
Well, I'm thinking about it, said Jones, but then he jogged across the sands. Arnie, get back! There's riptides out there! Arnie floated across the rocking waves, but drifted down shore and outward. Now Josh sounded the lifeguard horn and leaped off the tower and sprinted toward the red kayak near the shore. Mac moved up to Jones. Hey, Matthias, he's in trouble. I don't even like Josh going in there right now. What the hell is wrong with that man? I don't have time to answer that one, Mac. Josh pushed the kayak into the choppy waters and quickly moved along the waves. Almost immediately, he paddled into the strong current resistance and only paralleled the shore. Jones looked past a few people walking down the beach near Henry's Hill, near the mouth of the Pequonicut River. I know for a fact those currents fly out of the river. Arnie now attempted to swim back. Mac held Jones's shoulder briefly. Dewis is going down. Jones ripped off his coach's shirt and baseball cap. He peeled away his socks and sneakers and ran into the wind. His bare feet kicked up the sands as he followed Josh's course. A hundred yards ahead, a black lab broke from its owner and splashed into the surf. The dog's head bobbed up and down in the waves as Arnie fought the current. Jones slowed near the dog's owner as the dog veered like a little tugboat toward the struggling Arnie. Don't worry, Bowles will get him out, said the owner, a guy about Jones's age. I don't know, said Jones. That current is strong. Your dog could be in trouble, too. No, no, Bowles is well trained at the shore. The dog was now within ten feet of the splashing Arnie while Josh had just crossed the first line of breakers. In the guy's hand was a flat, green, double-fluted whistle. He lifted it to his lips and blew, but Jones heard nothing. He'll bring in that swimmer. I didn't hear anything, said Jones into the wind. It's how you modulate the signals. He hears exactly what he has to do. I have small kids, and I wanted to be on safety's side. Sure, so you're telling me you can train the dog to do things just by how you blow that whistle? Sure. Arnie grabbed the dog, and the dog turned. Josh paddled the kayak back on an erratic course toward the shore. Where'd you learn to train a dog like that, asked Jones. He shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I've been around dogs all my life. It's just something you pick up. You spend time with the dog, you reward him, and he'll respond. A huge blue towel was draped around Arnie's shoulders. Without his glasses, he squinted, but was able to hug the dog. See? That dog saved my life! He did, said Jones. That's how Noosebaum was killed! Mac handed the black-rimmed glasses to Arnie. You wouldn't listen to me, Matthias! Look, Arnie, I understand how this dog was trained in case the guy's kids were in trouble in the water. Jones extended his hand to the man. I'm Matthias Jones, by the way. Barry Morton. I come up here in the summer with my family on the Pequonicut. We're from Connecticut. Barry, tell him, tell him. He never listens. Tell him what? That a dog can be trained to shoot a gun. Well, I, I don't know about that, said Morton with a large grin, glancing between Arnie and Jones. Jones furrowed his brow and lifted his index finger toward Arnie. What if the gun was secured, you know, in a fixed position, asked Jones. Yeah, see? No, I'm granting you it's possible, Arnie. He turned toward Morton. How do you train a dog? Repetition and reward. As soon as Bose brought Mr. Dewis to the beach, I gave him a reward. Reward for saving Arnie? I question that one. What was that? Ah, little joke. Arnie can be annoying at times. So, so if a dog is intelligent enough, he can be trained to do anything. Morton smiled. Yeah, sure, but firing a gun, you'd have to be a real professional trainer. The sound of the gun would certainly frighten the dog. 
I guess if you knew what you were doing. Jones nodded as Arnie stood. He shuffled through the sand and spoke to Jones in a lower voice. I won't say anything, Matthias, but you owe me an apology and a debt of gratitude. Arnie, we have a theory. A theory dependent on somebody's ability to train a dog. That leaves Corbett, the mayor's wife, and Mick Dumas. Lenore owns a dog. I'm calling the Buckster, said Arnie. Yeah, 1-800-TROUBLE, said Jones. We'll get Bucky's dog, Tom and Rusty, and start through the test. With a gun? asked Jones. I don't want to be within a 100 miles of Bucky and a loaded gun. Come on, Matthias. Bucky shoots blanks. Arnie, that's the most accurate thing you've ever said. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 18. Three hours later, Jones navigated his jeep down the narrow tree-covered conservation road off Washington Street. Checking the Outback Club buildings again might yield additional evidence about the killer or indicate whether he or she actually trained the dog up in the woods. The pothole slowed his progress as the protruding bushes and low-hanging tree limbs scraped the jeep fenders. Up ahead, a car engine revved and dirt sprayed like paint from an aerosol can. He tapped his foot on the brake and finally cut the engine when the dirt barrage pelted his windshield. He leaped onto the sandy road. What the hell is going on here? Bucky's little campus security car was wedged between a dirt bank and a deep rut where the rear tire spun wildly. Jones shielded his face with his open hands and shouted over the racing engine, Bucky! Bucky! In the side mirror, Bucky's cockeyed glasses magnified his drooping eyes as he pounded the steering wheel and pushed the accelerator as he yelled. He flung open the door when he spotted Jones, but he slipped and tumbled onto the pine needles. The engine slowed, but the tires caught the sand, and the car popped out of the rut. Bucky crawled out on his belly as the little compact drifted over the hill. Dad, a stupid car! Bucky scrambled to his feet, but his gun dropped to the dirt. As Bucky placed the gun back in the holster, Jones noticed his uniform and shorts were splattered with chocolate. Bucky, are you all right? All right. Is caught in a rut being all right? You didn't see it? I was minding my own business, eating a sub and french fries. Lost that. And a double chocolate milkshake. Lost that. He brushed his shorts. Don't you think we'd better find that car? It took off over the hill. I'm in big trouble now. That's the third accident this month. You know, last week I didn't see those guys on Maple Street working the cable lines. Well, let's find the car, Bucky. I'm sure it's all right. Lucky they could grab onto the cables until I hit the ladder. They hung up in midair until the trucks backed up. Look, Bucky, I didn't know those bozos were backing up when I hit them. He pushed his glasses up his nose and stuck out his lower teeth as he looked up the hill. You think we should find that car? Yeah, I think we should. Come on, get in my Jeep. Nope, nope. This guy is going on foot. Come on, Bucky, don't be ridiculous. Bucky spun around. Jones shook his head and backtracked to the Jeep. Once behind the wheel, he started the car and shifted. Bucky marched in wide strides on the embankment. Then he drew his gun as Jones pulled alongside. Put the gun away, will you? Come on, use your head, Bucky. I came out here to outfox the blue boys and find that music man's killer. Jones scanned through the hilly woods, but he did not see the security car. Bucky, why don't you just stay out of it? No, sir. Said crime was perpetrated on my watch. 
Nobody's blaming you, Bucky. There's a lot of other things we could nab you for. Huh? He stopped at the top of the hill. We're the jeepers creepers is my car. Well, looks like said car has vanished, said Jones from the driver's side. Bucky walked around the jeep and pulled open the side door. He hoisted himself into the seat, but the gun barrel swung by Jones. Bucky, put that gun away. You wouldn't listen to us, would you? What do you mean? asked Jones, shifting down the conservation road. Arnie and me, we told you the dog did it. Well, we don't know that for sure. The road further narrowed between the bushes. I don't get it. Where's your car? One of the three suspects trained that dog right out here. Mookie Bisbane told me all about it, how he and Cookie solved the ballistics problem for you. Yeah, well, why don't you just put away that gun, okay? Jones slowed when the branches scraped the jeep. They heard the shots when they were dirt biking up here at night. How can your car be gone, Bucky? I knew I should have put it in park. Who do you think trained that dog, if that's what really happened? asked Jones. Bucky removed his glasses and rubbed his eyes as the jeep rumbled over the bumps. The female, Picada, Mick, the bandman, and Corbett, the estranged. See, I think they all trained the dog, but the dog went off on his own and shot Newsbomb. Dog went off on his own. That's a great theory, Bucky. Put away that gun, will you? Clearing brightened in the woods ahead. Both concrete-framed structures looked ghostly in the late afternoon sun. Bucky tilted the gun barrel upward. Stop here! Why? We could be under fire. Under fire from who? Asked Jones, wincing as he rolled across the high grass and thorns. This is a perfect place for crossfire, he said, panning the gun. Jones looped the jeep in front of the first building and shut off the engine. He pushed the door, but as he stepped out, he noticed the tall grass was tamped by additional car tracks. I didn't see this before because I came in from the other side. Lenore Picada had every opportunity to bring the dog out here because she was dog-sitting. Well, that's true, said Jones. And Corbett, her <laughs> lover, if Corbett was the murderer, that eliminates Lark and the others. Mick Dumas would need to bring the dog out here when the dog went out of the house. Corbett would have brought the dog out here. Bucky tightened his hands on Jones's forearm and spoke out of the corner of his mouth. They were making whoopee. Well, off and on. Well, how else do you do it? He laughed and squinted his eyes, but his expression quickly changed. Again, he panned the woods with his gun and back toward the second building's door frame. Jones trekked along the building. The tall grass next to the concrete was strewn with discarded cigarette butts, broken brown beer bottles, and styrofoam food containers. The open-framed opposite wood window was half-propped, just the way it was when he was here with the Bisbanes. The sunlight burst through the trees and into the darkened room. From the outside, Bucky sprang in front of the window. Whoa! Anybody ever tell you you're a pain, Bucky? Asked Jones as his heart pounded. You! You told me. I rest my case. Jones ran his fingers over the pummeled concrete. The cement has hundreds of chips. If the whistle is blown, the dog goes up to the gun and whacks the trigger. Since the gun is wedged securely, it fires on the fixed target. Newsbomb, who went to the conservatory every morning at nine. Huh? Now, said Jones as he crawled over the frame. Lenore came into the conservatory just before the lesson started. Yeah, she wasted him, said Bucky. Jones shook his head. She didn't waste him? She may have been checking for the gun, or maybe she placed the gun. Yeah, but Corbett had access to the keys.
Jones walked over to the window. I just don't like the fact that Mick was in the library. He's in the music department, and I wonder if he has keys or he got the keys. And if he was at an open library window, he could blow the dog whistle. You need to get Nussbaum's dog and try it out, said Bucky. No, I need to find Mick and Lenore. The leaves rustled outside. Bucky rushed to the window and assumed a firing stance. Freeze! Bucky, get back in here. Jones dove to the floor and Bucky unloaded his gun through the open window. He blocked his ears for 10 or 15 seconds until the barrage stopped, and then he crawled on his stomach over the dirt. Bucky slowly lowered the gun and opened his eyes. As he pressed his hand to stand up, Jones sliced his hand and grabbed the bloodied cut. All right, you've been hit! You've been hit! No, I hurt myself on the floor. Something on the floor. Bucky tiptoed to the window frame. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. What is it? Did you kill somebody? No, I just shot up my car. Bucky staggered out the opening as Jones stood and studied the gouge, just below the base of his index finger. A serrated piece of red plastic was half buried in the dirt. He pinched the edge and dragged it out. The statuesque Bucky stood in the tall grass, his gun pointed to the side as he stared at his little car, kitty corner to the road near a lofty pine. The radiator steamed and the windshield was punctured with small holes and the safety glass was cracked. Oh boy! Bucky, you just... I thought I recognized that car. You better put that gun away, said Jones. He retrieved the gun from Bucky's hand, spun out the chamber, and handed it back. I'll lose my job for sure now. Oh, well, listen, uh, why don't you let me drive you back to town? Bucky nodded, got in the Jeep, and kept looking out the window. Jones placed the red plastic piece in the dash near the drink holder, but kept the pressure on his cut. He unraveled a roll of paper towels from the back of the Jeep and wrapped his hand. Bucky remained mesmerized at the steam rising from the security car's hood as Jones steered the Jeep back to the conservation road through the wood shadows. He ran his thumb over the red plastic's jagged edge. Perhaps the killer broke this very piece of plastic. Funeral March for the Maestro Chapter 19 the sudden appearance of a yellow Volkswagen at the curb surprised Jones. He opened his front door with his good hand as Mick Dumas, dressed in a blue Hawaiian shirt and white slacks, passed through the front gate. A sliver of a toothpick was propped between his teeth and his thick gray hair flapped over his forehead. His gray whiskers needed shaving. Jones hopped onto the front steps as Mick proceeded up the walk. Well, you're the last person I thought I'd see. I just left a damn hour's worth of interrogation in George Strickland's office. Where the hell do you get off blaming me for that murder? Jones tightened his face. Well, where were you when Steve Corbett was shot, Mick? What the hell are you talking about? Now you're going to pin that on me too, is that it? I think it's clear that Lenore Picotta is Nussbaum's murderer, and she probably got Corbett. She was his lover. Jones moved closer. Dumas's breath stunk with booze. Oh, really? Murder is run, Jones. I had plane reservations for New Mexico, and I just canceled them. I'm not going anywhere, because I'm under suspicion for murder because of you. Oh, come on, Mick. I'm not the one who was canned from the symphony in here at the college. Shut up. Any normal human being would have resentment toward Nussbaum. Admit it, Mick. You hated Arnold Nussbaum. 
He threw the toothpick onto the grass. Hey, I'm a big boy. If I didn't make the grade, that's my fault. And as for you, my friend, what proof do you have? Tell me, I'd like to know. You were on the fifth floor of that library. So what? That's what I told Strickland. So what? Any legitimate investigator would have proof. Jones wanted to tell him about the dog theory. Obviously, Strickland wanted you to stay in New Hampshire. He has nothing on me and neither do you, said Mick, jabbing his finger. Maybe Corbett killed Nussbaum. Did you ever think of that? Jones nodded and then smiled. I'm sure either he did it or he knew something about it. You have nothing on me, Jones. Nothing, so back off and leave it for the professionals. He turned as if he were in a military parade and reversed direction to his shiny new car. I think Lenore was sent to the conservatory on purpose. Mick squinted at the door before he got inside. Maybe you could ask Steve Corbett. He swung his body like a pilot descending into the cockpit and quickly started the engine. The little yellow car zipped along the commons, granite posts and connecting black chains. Jones watched the car pass through the traffic light. Then he went back inside, bounded over the plumbing tools, and lifted the wall phone receiver from the counter. Was Dumas's defiance the result of a murderer covering his tracks, or a man legitimately upset about murder accusations? Jones punched in the Hamilton police station with his index finger. Demoted to the front desk, George? I'd welcome a demotion at this point, Matthias. I was about to call you. Oh? Lenore Picotta has answered written questions from Herbert Lane's office. I have the email right here. It isn't very long. She says Steve Corbett told her Nussbaum wanted to speak with her before his cello session at the conservatory. Jones chuckled. How convenient. Corbett is dead. What was in her purse? Great. She and Nussbaum talked about the symphony's fall schedule. Jones dragged the line across the kitchen. You mean they argued? She didn't say that, said Strickland. Courtney heard them arguing. I've about had it with this. Picotta is obviously pulling a fast one here. I agree, but sometimes there's nothing you can do. Excuse me? asked Jones as he picked up the Enterprise. I'm looking at a front-page article about Lark. Going to trial, the black-and-white photograph of Lark on the football sideline was 20 years old. We've all been sitting back here, assuming the killer is going to miraculously appear while Lark is brought to trial. Well, Smoltz said the jury will never convict. Smoltz has no credibility. I'm going over to Prince William. Strickland's voice assumed a more formal tone. Matthias, don't think about pushing Picotta. We're dealing with something here that you might not be able to stop. It's not right, George. Nussbaum is dead, and Picotta is thwarting the investigation. What else does the email say? Strickland shuffled the paper. She said she left via the Grayson Hall parking lot. That makes no sense. First of all, she lied, and then she said she was in Boston. Why would she drive from Prince William and not park next to the conservatory? Sounds like she parked behind Grayson so she wouldn't be seen. You're not going to rock the boat, are you, George? I know when I can't go any further. Well, I have to go. Matthias, don't push it. My father told me a long time ago, George, if you don't push it, nobody else will. Goodbye.
Jones hung up the phone and set it on the kitchen counter. He grabbed his keys and bolted out the front door. To his left, Sid's long black Cadillac crept along the curb. Jones pushed the open gate. Sid wore an oversized light blue suit and matching hat. His dark dyed hair pushed out the sides of the hat. He opened the car door and hoisted himself outside. Jones, I need your help. You need my help, Sid? I thought you had all the answers. We got a cover-up going on here, boy. Jones met him near the fender fence. What makes you say that, Sid? That DA is steering this whole thing toward my client. I can't even speak with Mrs. Bacata. All I have is this phony email. Your man Jefferson saw her inside the conservatory before my client arrived. Jones tightened his brow and looked into Sid's puffy blue eyes. I have to go. Sid held his arm. Look, um, I'm over my head here. A little late for a full confession, Sid. You don't understand. Jones shook his head. I'll call L.G. Bentley and get him on the case. I'm sure you did the best you could. I want to help, Jones. Listen, Sid, that's not necessary. Look, I'll ask L.G. if you can work with him. He squeezed Sid's smooth hand. I'm going to find the truth. Jones turned and started back toward his Jeep. And how are you going to do that? I have some connections in Prince William, he said as he crawled inside the Jeep and put the key in the ignition. I'm coming with you, Sid ambled toward the Jeep. Jones opened his eyes as Sid flung open the side door. Sid, honestly, I can handle this. It could be dangerous. I don't want you to get hurt. Sid groaned and fell back into the bucket seat, rocking the Jeep. I'm going to redeem myself. I owe that to Locke and to the people of this town. Sid, I insist and I will pick up the expenses. Jones started the Jeep. Okay, but listen, you let me run the show and you do exactly as I say. You're the general, sir. Jones reeled into Club Max's empty parking lot as Sid parroted his long and boring resume. So it was 1944 and the war called me forth. Sid, we're here. Coco Stefani is not the type of guy who tolerates nonsense. He's a streetwise type of guy. Do you know who you're dealing with, Jones? Sid rolled out the side door. Jones quickly rounded the hood. That's why I'm telling you. What was that? Let me do the talking. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He trailed Jones up to the lobby door. The smell of chemical cleaners and rug shampoo wafted under the spinning fans. Chairs were upside down on the glossy tables and stools were lined along the bar. In a fluorescent lighted side office, Coco sat behind a mahogany desk. A man with black rimmed glasses and a white shirt leaned over a stack of papers. This way, said Jones. Is he the owner of this gin joint? You said you'd be quiet, Sid. Oh yes, of course, of course. Coco looked up, but he kept talking to the man in the white shirt as he waved Jones forward. Jonesy, get in here. Jones moved ahead of Sid. Coco pushed back the brown leather chair. He grimaced at Sid and then turned to Jones. This is uh, Bernie Newman. He's my accountant. Who's the fat boy? Lark Larson's attorney. You bozo. What do you got Larson pleading guilty for? I resent your attitude, sir. Attitude? 
Attitude? What attitude? Jonesy, we got big problems with Bacata. Well, he's shielding his wife. No, no, there's more going on here. He again looked Sid up and down. You sure I can talk here in front of Chubby? Sir, my honor is threatened. Shut up. Yeah, you can talk. Nah, I don't trust him. He pulled Jones inside the back office and slammed the door. Johnny Filoni, you know him? No. One of Picada's punks. I got the word he received a certain 242 stolen from Chicago ten days ago. Really? For Picada? No, he ain't that stupid, but word came down from Picada's office. Jones leaned on the desk. Are you telling me Picada is in on this murder? You're damn right I'm telling you that. I say drop the whole thing. I've felt this from the beginning. You don't want to be screwing around with Picada. You'll find yourself wasted in an alley somewhere. And just let Lark take the rap. Get him a decent lawyer and he'll get off and get rid of Clarence Darrow out there. Jonesy, sometimes you can't fight power, you know that. And sometimes you can. You're gonna have to accept this, Jonesy. Jones paced in front of the desk. Why would Picotta kill Nussbaum? He didn't, but he probably helped out. Why rock the boat? Look, I know some lawyers down in Boston. You want Lawson to get off? We'll get him off. But don't push Picotta. The door creaked. Coco creased his brow and crossed the room. He placed his hand on the knob and twisted it. Sid fell forward and stumbled into the office. Coco took him by the lapels. You like to listen in on people, Tubby? Sir, you are a thug. What are you doing with this joker, Jonesy? Asked Coco with his fist cocked. I'd have smack you, sucker. You have caught me off guard, sir. You're a chugglehead. If you backed up your words, sir, you'd have Lenore Picotta right here talking to us now. Oh, yeah? You listen to me. You don't know nothing about Picotta. He's got links to people in Boston, New York City, people that wouldn't be as tolerant there, chubby. So let me understand what you're saying. You're talking tough, but you're unable to break through those people around the mayor who might allow us access to his wife. Is that your statement? Coco turned. I don't have to put up with this bag of wind. We need to talk to Lenore. She was there and could have shot Nussbaum. I tell you, Picotta himself is involved, said Coco. He dragged his lower teeth over his lip and sat on the edge of the desk. Then he picked up the phone and punched in numbers quickly. His dark eyes moved from side to side. Jones heard the line ringing. This is Coco. Get me Alex Filoni. Newman looked up from the papers. Hey, Coco, don't pressure the Filonis. It'll get back to Picada. Never mind, Bernie. I'll handle it. Yeah, Alex. Hey, where's your pickpocket brother? I don't want to listen to it. Shut up. There's nothing in it for you. He snapped his fingers and pretended to write. Newman handed him a pen and a sheet of paper. Smart move. He scribbled something quickly and hung up the phone. You really think Filoni will tell you anything? Asked Jones. He's not going to tell me nothing. Coco handed the paper to Sid. Here's your big lead, fat man. Sid glanced at the paper. Number 47, where's Canal Street? Coco tilted his head back and laughed. <laughs> you tell him, Jonesy. Jones pressed his lips as he turned to Sid. Off the docks, it's not a good area. And Filoni is there? 
asked Sid. Yeah, he's there. <laughs> Good luck there, Mr. Smoltz. You'll need it. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 20. Jones shifted the jeep and the engine whined and he slowly followed the murky docks along the river. The huge cargo ships and black hulled tankers cast sullen shadows through a developing mist. Weathered shingled tenements were interdispersed with rusted edge metal buildings lined with chain link fences. We're pushing our luck, Sid. Not the first time I made my reputation in places like this. Jones rolled his eyes. The Crosstown Bridge wavered through the misty sheets steaming up the river. Canal Street is up there on the left. Well, I will extract the information from this felony. You'll keep your mouth shut. I won't push Filoni if he doesn't want to talk. My next move is to go see Picotter himself. Jones slowed the jeep at the corner liquor store with red neon signs and a tiny dark window. Sid pointed at a peeling brown street sign with faded yellow letters. Canal Street. Thanks, I did see it there, Sid. The street sloped upward from the docks and the building tops brightened above the fog. Some roofs still had antennas. Number 47 was a weathered brown three-decker across the street. Jones spun the jeep around sharply and parked behind a dented red Camaro with a peeling black vinyl top. Take down that tag. For what? asked Jones as he stepped under the asphalt. The liquor store's neon sign glowed in the darkening haze near the docks. Lock it, Sid. Sid pushed down the door lock and closed the jeep door. You have your gun? My gun is locked in the drawer back at my house. Always carry a gun there, boy. Yeah, right, said Jones. The gate scraped the hinges when he opened it and a little guy with greasy hair, clad in an undershirt, kicked open the aluminum storm door. Jones did not like his smirk. You felony? He had a cocky voice. Yeah, who the hell are you? Jones, from Hamilton. Yeah, so what? We need to speak with a Mr. John Felony, sir. What are you, the IRS? A balding and slightly overweight man in a shiny brown suit and a thin red tie stepped off the top porch. The glowing mist heightened his beard shadow within his translucent skin. I'm Johnny Filoni. Matthias Jones, Steve Corbett sent me. His eyes shifted and he did not smile. Yeah, is that right? What is it you guys want to know? The little guy's lip curled as Jones moved by and put his foot on the worn wood step. He looked into Filoni's watery brown eyes. The 242. I only follow orders. Jones nodded. I won't be so stupid to ask you who gave you the orders. I don't care. Sid plodded up the walk. I will. You're not dealing here with amateurs, mister. Shut up, Sid, said Jones. But Jones, we need... I said shut up. Then he faced Filoni. Did Corbett get the 242? Filoni creased his brow and licked his lips as if he wanted to say something. It doesn't matter. Corbett is dead. Filoni nodded. Yeah, I got the gun for Corbett, and I gave it to him right over there, under the Crosstown Bridge. Now you're getting smart, said Sid. Who authorized you to give him that gun? Filoni did not even look at Sid. I don't think he did it. I can't say for sure, but I got the impression he was just getting the gun. He just packed it in his glove compartment without checking it. You know what I mean? Jones crossed his arms. 
I understand this goes beyond Steve Corbett, but do you know who killed Corbett? Yeah, I know. Listen, Jones, go back to Hamilton. Let the DA do what he has to do and don't press your luck. Jones climbed onto the porch boards and had my friend get railroaded for murder. <laughs> you, you can't beat City Hall, said Filoni, and he stared for several seconds before he and the little guy retreated into the apartment. The door slammed and was locked from the inside. Let's get them rascals out of there, said Sid. Forget it, Sid. You gotta push, Jones. You gotta push. Jones walked by him. It's pretty obvious Picard is behind this whole thing. I think he tried to frame his wife. Had her arrive at the conservatory at the time of the murder. That, sir, is an erroneous conclusion. Jones turned at the gate. Why the hell is that? That witness, Jefferson, has been talked to. Why do you think he waited to come forward and didn't go to the police, but he came to you? He waited because he's a nudge. Now, come on, Sid. Let's go see Lark at the county jail. Then we'll head down to the mayor's office. Whoa, ho, ho. Whoa, ho. This is where I bow out. I want to enjoy the rest of my life. What about your old friend, Lark? Asked Jones as he unlocked the passenger door. Sid lowered his head. You are a man of honor, sir. I recant, and I will solve this one for the lark. Okay, Gipper, let's go. I'm doomed! Lark paced the cell, whipped off his glasses, and collapsed on the bedsheet. I'm doomed, Sidney. I'm a dead man! Jones held his shoulders and looked into his warm blue eyes. Lark, we're working on this. I have lived a long life, old boy. Bring me a large meatball sub before I'm juiced. You ain't gonna be juiced, said Sid. With provolone, tell Flo I'm sorry for being so cheap. You know the old saying, said Jones, standing. Facing the executioner's blade in the morning sharpens the senses. I will, of course, leave all my money to the college, said Lark. Don't get carried away, Lark, said Jones. The Fletchers endow the college quite liberally. And Flo will get her monetary reward. Smarten up, boy. Jones and I are real close. You ain't gonna die. Perhaps I should build a new stadium. It's already named after you, Lark, said Jones. You have that much money packed away? I have to follow in the tradition of Andrew Carnegie. Or Milk Crabtree. Who's Milk Crabtree? asked Jones. He made his money in apples, said Sid. Incredulity was stamped over Jones's face. Look, Sid and I are going to talk to the mayor. Oh, God, don't leave me all alone here with that Herbert Lane. Roland Chance told me I would fry. He can't question you without me being here, yelled Sid. No witnesses. I'm doomed. Doomed. No jury in the world is going to convict you if that woman was in the building before you arrived, added Sid. Don't worry. Lark, you have my new cell number, and you said Flo is coming over tonight. Yes, sir, said Lark as he slid on his glasses. I'll keep a stiff upper lip. Well, that's the spirit, Lark, said Sid, smacking Lark's shoulder hard enough to stun him. We'll fix you right up. Lark rubbed his shoulder. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Full speed ahead. 
Jones waved and the guard opened the cell door. He waited for Sid near the stairs. I think he'll be all right. I have plans to baffle the competition. No more trips to the hospital, Sid. No more antics. No more shenanigans. Sid huffed and puffed all the way to the landing. I'm gonna grill that two-bit mayor. No, 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 no. You let me do the talking. A slight mist outside the county jail hit Jones's face on the way to his Jeep. Sid, why don't you and I just drive back to your hotel? No, sir, I have a responsibility to the man inside that jail cell. Well, everybody needs a break, he said, unlocking the door. What do you say? No, sir. He pushed up the button on Sid's door. Sid crawled inside and the jeep sunk to the right. I want you to notify the court and let LG take over Lark's case. Sidney Smoltz does not give up. Okay, said Jones as the wipers swished the thin mist off the windshield. He scooped up his phone as he pulled away from the jail. I need to call George Strickland. Then let's grab a bite. I could use a few of those mega burgers at Burger Heaven. Jones nodded and punched in Strickland's number. I'll treat if you get off the case, Sid, but we'll go to the PW Diner. Non sequitur, replied Sid. Strickland. George, this guy Filoni gave Corbett the Smith & Wesson. How do you know this? He told me, reluctantly, this could create big problems for me if you question him. He told me to back off. Then Corbett requested the gun, asked Strickland. Maybe. Look, we just met with Lark. He's working himself into a frenzy. Strickland chuckled. Oh, what else is new? Listen, I should have Dumas and Corbett service records within the hour. We're heading down to City Hall to talk to Picada. Did you say we? Right, said Jones quickly. Ah, you're with Sidney V.D. Smoltz. Yes, you hit the nail right on the head, George. He slowed at the corner light and turned into the mist toward the center of the city. Don't go bringing Smoltz anywhere, Matthias. Tell me about it. Call me about Corbett and Mick. You'll regret being with that guy. Could be worse. Strickland paused. How is that? Could be Bucky Driscoll. Well, his car is in Pudgy Wilson's garage as we speak. Goodbye, Matthias. Goodbye. He clicked off the phone and swung around the line of cars, moving toward the Crosstown Bridge on-ramp. Back in 1957, I faced the big boys. Is that right? asked Jones, downshifting. Yep. Not many people knew the Mafia was meeting up in New York. My client needed a recovery of lost funds. They were surprised, yes sir, when I pulled in there. Jones slipped on his lights and passed under the bridge's supports. You're saying you burst in on a mafia meeting? Yes, I demanded to see Carmen Guglielmi. you know, the Don of Chicago. Sid, you don't have to try and impress me. Got every cent back once Carmen pulled away the gun. As he held the wheel with one hand, Jones glanced at Sid's large form. Do you think Lenore shot him? Then he looked directly at Sid. What do you mean Carmen pulled away the gun? Russian roulette. He bet the rest of them he'd blow my brains out. Well, I guess he won, huh? Oh, yes. I forget your sense of humor, but it was no laughing matter at the time. Whatever you say, Sid.
Funeral March for the Maestro, Chapter 21 Sid crunched Jones against the back wall panel as the elevator filled up. Jones twisted his nose. Hey, Sid, you ever think of changing your cologne? Spice of the night, it's a classic, he said, half turning his head. I've dealt with these political types before. You let me handle Picada. Sid's wide shoulders crushed Jones's ribs. Sid, come on, I can't breathe. Well, maybe you should exercise more. I should exercise more? Yeah, it doesn't take much. The fourth floor door is open. This is it. Coming through, coming through. Sid pushed his arms forward as if he were going to leap off the diving board. Beep, 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 beep. Come on, coming through, coming through. Jones took a deep breath once Sid had marched forward and parted the crowd into the tiled lobby. Pukata's office was behind the large wood-stained doors at the end of a spacious corridor. I doubt he's in, but I want him to know we've been here. I'm going to give that mayor a piece of my mind. Well, that's good for a blink of an eye. What did you say, Jones? I said, let's take some mental notes, said Jones as he opened the heavy wood doors. The room was filled with cubicles and side offices and buzzed with conversation. Jones squeezed by Sid and up to the counter. I'm Matthias Jones. I'm here to see Mayor Picotta. The mayor has an appointment at two, but you aren't the school commissioners, are you? Would you let him know I'm out here? Matthias Jones. I can. She pushed a button and held the phone to her ear. Matthias Jones is here to see you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will. She looked up. He told me to send you inside. He did? She motioned him by a floor-sized wispy plant. Ma'am, said Sid as he passed and tipped his hat. Jones rounded the corner. Picotta's full gray hair contrasted with his blue pinstriped suit and yellow paisley tie. You're looking for my wife. As a matter of fact, I am, said Jones. Two women in short skirts hovered over a center table. Picotta's dark eyes focused on Sid and then back to Jones. Ladies, if uh, you'll prepare those reports, I'll go over them uh, in the morning. The two women picked up their briefcases and scattered from the room. Please close the door behind you. Sid watched the woman sashay into the corridor, and then he kicked the rich wood door shut. We have come here to get answers. Oh, yeah, is that right? What are you, Larson's lawyer? Why the hell did he plead guilty? Strategy, sir, strategy. Lunacy. It's unfortunate that Larson arrived at the music hall when he did. Gentlemen, I've just talked to uh, Herbert Lane. I told him my wife was called by Steve Corbett to an appointment with Professor Nussbaum at the conservatory. Corbett told her to be there at 8.45. Well, why did he want to see her? asked Jones. I think you would personally know what Steve Corbett was capable of. Very good, very good. Yes, I'm well aware that Steve stirred up trouble. See, he had an accident in the service that left him a little, uh, shall we say, unstable. Lenore was told Nussbaum was going to ask her to resign her position with the symphony. Did your wife tell you that? asked Jones. Yes, she did. Jones looked out the window and across the foggy bridge. He shook his head as he turned. Where is she, Mr. Mayor? Picotta's face contorted. 
Jones thought the tears in his eyes were phony. My wife is suffering a mental breakdown. She's currently undergoing drug and counseling therapy. Oh, come on, where is that? Well, that's confidential, Jones. Jones, don't you see that your buddy Larson will get off? But my wife, I'm afraid, I'm afraid my wife is in big trouble. Jones turned from the window. You're telling me she admitted to firing the gun? I can't divulge any actual court testimony. She didn't do it. I know it, and you know it. That goes double for me, said Sid. He strolled by Jones and closed in on Picotta until his stomach brushed Picotta's shoulder. How do we know that you didn't order these events to take place? I don't have to listen to you, Smoltz. Picotta winced at him, and then he faced Jones. As for Lenore, it will all come out in court. Well, I know a good old-fashioned frame-up when I see it, said Sid. Why don't you shut up? Come on, Sid, back off, said Jones. Stuff the wife away in some nut house. I haven't been around long enough not to recognize that routine. Lenore has been hospitalized for her own good. Picotta stepped back, but Sid followed him. I'm warning you, Smoltz. How do I release my client? asked Sid. I'm not a court officer. Listen, what's about to happen to me and my family is not going to be pretty. I agree. Back off, Sid. Jones walked around the desk. Let me ask you one question, Mr. Mayor. Picotta again sidestepped away from Sid and circled the desk. Sure. What do you know about training dogs? Picotta's face flattened and then he shook his head quickly. Jones, I don't know where you're leading and I really don't care. Let the courts take care of this, okay? Now, I really can't waste any more time with you two. As he turned, Jones grabbed his wrist at the suit sleeve. I'm going to figure this out. And I don't care where it leads, even if it leads right to you, Mr. Mayor. Get your hands off me. Jones released his grip. You've crossed the line, Jones, and so is that overgrown paralegal. When you cross the line with Vinnie Picotta, you pay the price. Picotta headed for a side door, but Sid took a few steps toward him. We are not intimidated. Speak for yourself, Sid. That is why we have a court system in this great country of ours. Sid gripped his lapels as he spoke. A code of justice handed down from the framers. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Picotta slammed the door and Jones moved up to Sid. Oh, we're up to our necks in it now. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Unfortunately, some men have more rights than others, said Jones. I say, let's get out of here now. He doesn't scare me, said Sid at the side door. Well, he damn well better. The fix is in, Sid. The fix is in with Roland Chance and with Herbert Lane. Lord knows what they did with Lenore. Sid stared at the door and slowly turned toward Jones. His eyes were popped open as if he had just reached an epiphany. Sid, I suggest we get the hell out of here and back to Hamilton. Jones yanked Sid by the arm as he retraced his steps out of the office. Let's go. The Fletchers have connections in high places. We'll talk to them. 
He walked Sid's large frame from Picada's office and back to the outer area. Jones's heart raced and his stomach was peppered with anxiety. He said nothing until he was outside the main office. Then he turned to Sid. He's lying, and somehow he set up his wife. You know what? What, Sid? We're dead men. Dead men. Funeral March for the Maestro. Chapter 22. Inside the noisy PW diner, cups and sauces clanged as steady conversation crackled in the side booths and along the front counter's red leatherette and chrome stools. Sid chewed the last few chunks of a 16-ounce steak like a meat grinder on overload and then crammed more fries into his mouth. Well, I'm sorry that veal parmesan is late there, Jones. How difficult can it be to thaw out veal parm? Jones leaned toward the kitchen's swinging doors. The diner was thick with food aromas. Are you sure you ordered my meal, Sid? I gave her the order. Sid set down the knife and fork but kept chewing. Good help is hard to find. Jones inspected the empty plate. Sid, you ate that steak in about two minutes. I need an appetizer. Aren't you supposed to order the appetizers before the main meal? It all adds up to the same there, Jones. Yeah, right. He checked the wide plates on the stainless shelf's infrared lights. Then he turned to the window and the creeping fog along the river. Picada's arrogance was extraordinary, and his involvement in Nussbaum's death was not clear. Jones needed to connect the dots. His new cell phone's powerful chime startled him, and Sid sent the table careening into his stomach. Watch what you're doing, will you? What did I do? asked Strickland on the other end. Sid lifted his huge frame from the chair and burped loudly. I'm going to find that waitress. Yeah, I doubt she has a laxative. This bottomless pit here is made of steel. I believe it, Jones waved him away. I'm here, George. McDumas and Corbett were at Camp Pendleton together. Really? Jones stared at Sid meandering across the crowded diner. Now what does that mean? You think Corbett brought the gun to Mick? There's more, said Strickland. Dumas's record goes back to Vietnam. Look, George, we'll talk when I get back. That is, if I can shut off this human food-sucking machine. Hold it. In Vietnam, and when he was stateside, Mick was in the canine training sector. Jones raised his brows and slouched back in the chair. He was silent for some time. You have to arrest Mick Dumas right now, George. He trained that dog is what he did. I sent Rick over to Newtown to bring Mick in for questioning. Tell me more about what you found at the Outback Club. No, you have to arrest him. Jones pressed the phone to his ear as Sid burped and returned to the table. I think Lenore was a setup. I think she left early is what happened, and then good old Lark comes barreling in there trying to get his money. I didn't want to believe that somebody trained that dog, but Mick had the training in the service to pull it off. See? Annie and Bucky were right. Don't rub it in, Sid. Is he still with you, Matthias? Oh, yeah. Look. Mick may have worked with the dog and could have stood in that fifth-floor window and signaled with some kind of dog whistle. Come to think of it, 
Lark mentioned his hearing aid was messed up when he drove into the parking lot. I'll be right back, said Sid, and Jones nodded. I hear what you're saying, but this dog thing would have to be perfectly executed. He blows the whistle and the dog responds immediately, gets up and hits the trigger. Plus, you're talking about the gun being exactly placed. In the piano, it fires and lands on the ground. Jones scanned the restaurant for Sid. Oh, where did he go now? I'm worried about Bacata's involvement in this and about Lenore's whereabouts. We could be getting in over our heads. Well, that's what I was trying to tell you. It was a matter of Corbett framing his lover and Mick carrying it out because he wanted Nussbaum dead, said Strickland. question is, Bacata's involvement. Maybe he wanted Lenore framed. Proving that is impossible with Corbett dead. Mick may have just dealt with Corbett. I'm telling you, arrest him. Well, it looks like Sid is MIA. Oh, good old F. Lee is missing, eh? Yeah. We're heading back home as soon as I get my dinner, whenever that is. Let me know how you make out with Mick. Rick will be over there with Mick in about 15 minutes. Goodbye, George. Jones set down the phone on the table as the blonde waitress appeared with his veal parmesan. I didn't think I'd be eating tonight. What do you mean? She asked, Sir, you have to order to get food. Well, my friend placed the order. Yes, he placed the order for steak, french fries, onion rings, and the milkshake. He never placed the order for the veal. We didn't prepare the order until you asked. I thought so, thanks. He peered around the restaurant for Sid, cut the veal, and twirled the pasta on his fork as he shook his head. And twirled the pasta on his fork as he shook his head. He took out his phone and scanned for Bernice's cell number. The steam drifted upward from the pasta and he pushed the send button. Then he lifted the fork full of pasta into his mouth. The tomato sauce and garlic was exactly blended. Hello, this is Bernice. Bernice, this is Matthias Jones. Her voice lost its intensity. Yes. How are you two doing? I'm sorry about your husband. Mother is sedated, but I'm okay. Did Steve kill my father? I don't know. He may have contributed to your father's death. What does that mean? Jones still did not see Sid. He may have procured the gun, but what he did with it is very nebulous at this point. Look, is there anything I can do to help? No, Steve is gone. Apparently because of his involvement with nefarious people. There's nothing I could have done to stop that. He will be buried back in Virginia. Well, Mick Dumas and Steve served together in the service, said Jones. Steve never mentioned that. Bernice, I don't know how to say this, but Mick worked with dogs in the service. I think he used Rex to somehow fire that gun that killed your father. How could that be? I think that's a stretch. Having the gun stationary in the piano. I think Mick trained the dog while you people were in Europe. Three weeks is a long time. I don't think so. I really don't. Jones cut the veal as he balanced the phone. But Rex can come and go through that lower door in the kitchen, correct? Correct. Mick could have trained him to leave the house and then brought him out. Do you have any direct evidence of this? I think I do. Mick was very clever, said Jones, and he placed a chunk of seasoned veal on his tongue. 
I know Steve hated my father. Jones chewed the veal. Listen, I think we need to verify whether Rex could have actually done what Mick trained him to do. Damn him if it's true. Rex loved my father. I have to make some calls on this end. The police can get a canine expert over to Hamilton and figure this out real quick. You call if you need anything. I will. Goodbye. Jones ended the call and set the phone on the table and cut another piece of veal. He again appeared across the diner but did not see Sid. Jones handed a $20 bill to the waitress. He scanned the diner for Sid as she counted back the change, but he told her to keep it. Thank you, sir. You haven't seen the big guy, have you? He's hard to miss. Jones smiled. He put the wallet back in his jeans pocket as Sid barreled around the corner. Sid, where have you been? You've been gone 20 minutes. Oh, Mother Nature calls. Suppose you want more food. No, sir. Can we go now? That was the plan, Sid. Jones grit his teeth before he opened the door and saw a black Lexus across the street. Ah, oh, here we go. I bet Picotta has somebody watching us. Maybe we should go back inside for a while. Oh, no. What do you mean, oh, no? Asked Jones. He opened the front door and started down the ramp. The Lexus's engine was running. Sid, you did something, didn't you? I know you did something. Oh, boy. Let's get back to Hamilton now. What's your hurry? But I, I, I... In the late afternoon mist, it was impossible to see who was inside the Lexus. Picotta has people following us. This investigation is heading into places I don't want to go. But he promised he'd keep his mouth shut. Jones unlocked the jeeps. Sid, what are you talking about? And by the way, thanks for not ordering my meal. He popped the passenger lock and Sid soon enveloped the right side of the jeep. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? I'm sorry. I finally got the meal. Jones started the jeep, but the Lexus inched along the road as he drove it across the lot. Wait a minute, what are you sorry for? For calling Lark. Why did you call Lark? To tell him he didn't murder Nussbaum. Why did you tell Lark anything? He has the biggest mouth on the East Coast, said Jones. The Lexus was poised at the corner stop sign. Jones spun quickly and looped back around the diner lot. Sid was thrown against the door. At high speed, he cut behind the diner and shot out the side street. Somehow, Picotta has gotten wind of this. Lark promised he wouldn't say anything. Yeah, that's a good one. Jones reached the top of the hill, but as he cut right, the Lexus zipped around the diner. Picotta has nothing to gain by killing us. Scaring us off the case, yes, but killing us? (laughs) No, 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 said Sid, gripping the door handle. Jones smacked his head against the headrest as he raced down the hill. I just wonder who Lark talked to. The river haze spread out below. Years of experience as sharpened my inside, Jones. I know when a man is telling the truth. Yeah, right. The ground leveled out and Jones slowed at a one-way street leading to a granite roundabout ahead. The Lexus dipped and accelerated behind him. Jones braked but did not steer toward the Crosstown Bridge. He banked at a side street lined with brick warehouses back to the diner. Over the cobblestones, a mirror jiggled and Alexis was not in sight. A deft maneuver, sir. I've only bought us time. 
He took out his cell phone and pushed the 911 button. The diner appeared in the mist at the end of the building's shadows. He paused at the corner as the line rang. Prince William, emergency. Officer Kremens. Krem, this is Matthias Jones. I'm being chased by a black Lexus near the PW Diner. PW Diner? Yeah. As Jones shifted near the silver diner, Dumas's yellow Volkswagen skidded across the road. A bullet pierced the front windshield as Jones was about to speak. We're taking incoming fire, yelled Sid. Jones cut the call and dropped the phone. He gripped the wheel and spun to the right so he paralleled the Volkswagen. The floppy-haired Mick Dumas pointed the handgun out the driver's window as both vehicles diverged, but he fired wild. The swizzle stick, of course. He checked the bandage on his hand as he accelerated away from the diner. That plastic was a part of a swizzle stick from Club Max. Jones cut the wheels right and flew by the vinyl-sided tenements under the shadow of the Crosstown Bridge's mammoth concrete pylons. In the mirror, Mick turned the yellow Volkswagen only a few hundred yards behind him. Mark must have opened his mouth. My client assured me he would talk to nobody. Somebody got to Mick, yelled Jones. He ran the stop sign at the Crosstown Parkway and aimed the jeep over the raised median. In the blare of the horn and swinging headlights in the mist, Jones swung into a 180-degree tailspin. He bounced across the lanes and joined the trail of cars pulsing up the bridge ramp. He's right behind us, cried Sid, looking in the side mirror. Jones saw the Volkswagen leap the median. He downshifted and squeezed along the off-ramp rail. The line constricted ahead where the ramp rail met the bridge rail. Mick swung the car around the ramp caravan. The Volkswagen edged closer up the ramp rail. Another shot hit Jones's tire, and the Jeep collapsed on Sid's side of the car. Jones released the clutch. The Jeep shook and stalled, and then he punched open his door. He rolled onto the wet asphalt and crawled past his front tire. The river's salt air blended into the exhaust-laden mist as cars whipped by on the interstate. More shots reverberated off the bridge's massive girder network, mixing with Dumas's slurry voice. I'll kill you, Jones! I'll kill you! Jones scrambled and grabbed the ramp rail. Over his shoulder, Mick waved the gun, and at the top of the off-ramp, he ejected the ammunition clip over the edge. Quickly, he inserted a new clip and assumed a firing stance. Jones again dove onto his stomach. Bullets hit the rail on concrete as he clawed the wet asphalt to the bridge's sidewalk. The traffic sped by as if nothing was wrong. To his right, the service gate led to a grid landing and the ladder descended into the lower girder supports. Jones vaulted the gate under more gunfire. He grasped the moist ladder railings and dropped down the metal slotted steps into the fog, covering the bridge's underbelly. The upper concrete's highway platform shook from each passing car, and the distant sound of the harbor foghorns resonated down the river. Dumas's voice was not clear, but Jones did hear him. He must have reached the gate. You cost me my life! Jones leaped onto the metal catwalk and grasped the side rails 50 feet below the highway. He broke into a slippery jog, balancing his wet hands along the rails but the wind currents threatened to take his body over the foggy edge. He fell twice, but caught himself on the rail, tensed his upper body, and continued through the mist. 
He thought he had fled the attacking Mick when a bullet pinged the surrounding girders. Pakata must have called Mick, or perhaps the mayor was prompted by Lark or by his own conversation at City Hall. He looked over his shoulder. The salty fog now moved in like a high-speed rail train through the myriad of girders and metal abutments. Mick reached the lower ladder and lowered himself onto the catwalk. Police sirens were muffled above as Jones shuffled across the grid's indefinite moist metal path. I planned this perfectly, Jones! Jones sensed a sharp pain before he heard the last shot. He slapped his hand against his bloodied shoulder and hit the slick grid like a slab of meat on a conveyor belt. His fingers bloodied. He clawed the metal slots and pulled himself forward. Another catwalk extended fully under the bridge to his left. His shoulder throbbed as he hoisted himself up and staggered into the bridgework's cloudy shadows. He pivoted left at another catwalk intersection and started down the ladder as Mick screamed in the haze above him. Weakness caused dizziness. He stopped and peered into the thick fog hundreds of feet above the river. You ruined everything! I'll get you, Jones! I'm going to kill you! cried Mick from a position above and to the right. Maybe he had not taken the side catwalk. I had the cops buffaloed! I had the family buffaloed! Jones's heartbeat squeezed the blood vessels in the open wound. With lagging concentration, he slowly positioned his sneaker on the wet rungs. He gripped the side rails and lowered himself down to the next catwalk. Pain radiated with every breath from a central point near his shoulder bone. The metal grids vibrated above as a ship's horn resonated across the harbor winds, and he fell back against the ladder. After pressing his handkerchief against his blood-soaked jersey, he pressed his handkerchief against his blood-soaked jersey. Then he ripped the jersey into a linear strip and looped the strip around his shoulder. Mick held his gun vertical as he emerged from the murky mist above. Jones tightened his makeshift bandage until it hurt. He crawled on his belly across the slick, cold metal. Water dripped onto his neck and the wind cooled the mist, beaded on his cheeks. The outlines of the massive bridge pylon formed an indefinite form upward toward the rumbling interstate. Mick fired the gun again, but Jones figured the shot was designed to scare and not hit him. His scraped elbow stung as he dug forward. Deeper within the bridgework, a green door was set in the concrete, but the catwalk ended. The thin girder support was now the only safe passage away from the frenzied Mick. Jones, I see blood on the metal. You're hit, you're weak, and you will slip. You'll fall into the river. Do you hear me? Jones's mouth was dry when he swallowed. Breathing erratically and still woozy, he climbed under the rail and onto the thin metal girder. Its greasy, wet surface pressed the cold against his jersey and exposed stomach. His left hand hung limp. Like an inchworm, he compressed his knees and arched his back along the span above the unseen river. He stopped. His body pointed downward after a few minutes. The green-painted door was dull in the cloudy late afternoon light. Police sirens sounded above, high on the interstate, and the crackling radios blared into the mist. Again, he pulled his body with his knees and right hand. Mick fired again and yelled something inaudible. The wind gust whistled through the girders. Jones grunted under his breath as he ever so slowly neared the lower catwalk two side rails. The wind gust whistled through the girders, but he hung on with his right hand. 
He pushed his knees against the metal every time the gust ceased. A bullet smacked the catwalk as he clawed under the rail onto the grid surface. Mick appeared sporadically in the quick-moving haze, but Jones remained on his stomach. Jones, you're a dead man! Jones gazed up the immense weathered concrete pylon through the girders and into the shadowed linear highway sections. Mick unloaded half a dozen bullets into the concrete. Jones then raced forward in pain and staggered to the door. His hand enveloped the cold metal handle and he pulled it down, but the door stuck. Mick shot again and split the wood panels as Jones dove to the base of a black spiral stairway. The door splinted under fire, but somehow he managed to yank it shut and turn the lock. He covered his head as the barrage continued. He leaned against the cold concrete, momentarily insulated against the outside world, and he took in stilted, segmented breaths. With his fingers, he traced the contours of the corrugated cold metal stair tread. He crawled onto the stairs and assumed he had time before Mick crossed the girder. Step by step, occasionally resting, Jones plodded upward. He rubbed his open palm against the smooth concrete as the staircase twisted through the pylon. He thought he'd pass out and spread his legs over the stairs. The bizarre image of Mick firing the gun in the haze would not leave his thoughts. He rolled over and climbed upward. Maybe he had ditched the pursuing Mick. Traversing a 50-foot slope girder 200 feet above the river may have scared him off. Jones started up the concrete again, but thought it unusual. He had not found another door within the wall, and he feared he was trapped inside an impenetrable concrete tomb. Even at his wounded pace, he must have risen above the interstate level. The air was moldy and stuffy, and the outside world seemed non-existent. He felt the door frame and quickly clenched the handle. For a moment he hesitated, wondering if Mick was outside but he turned it abruptly as the wind whipped the door against the concrete. The cold air rushed inside the staircase tunnel as blue and red light shot like strobe blotches into the dirty grid girders. The police talked on loud radios somewhere in the fog below. Jones staggered onto the wet metal walkway, but slipped as he turned and hit the grid hard. He lay motionless in the mist again, beaded on his exposed back and arms. Through the fabricated metal slots, the flashing red and blue light jumped around the cloudy mess. He moved on his stomach and used the rail to pull himself onto his knees. The dizziness and weakness in his limbs exacerbated as he stood. He hobbled when he thought he heard movement on the staircase and reached another catwalk perpendicular to his path. The wind pushed him back, but he dipped his shoulder and marched high above the roadway. He panned the arch beams at the bridge's crest and then checked back to the open pylon door. Gust slapped his face all the way to the ladder. Like a spacecraft docking, he backed toward the ladder walls. Slowly, he pushed his bruised knees over the edge. But when he positioned his foot on the rung and grabbed the rail, the wind swung him toward the river clouds. More shots echoed through the supports. With his foot hooked, Jones cranked himself back onto the ladder and under fire he shimmied down. The light barrage bothered his eyes, but he did not see Mick as he fell on his stomach and his bloodied elbows smashed against the grid. More bullets ricocheted down the catwalk. Through the fast-moving clouds, as if he were on a plane, he alternately saw broken white lines on the asphalt below. Once again a bullet hit the catwalk and Jones ground his elbows into the grid. 
At the end of the catwalk was yet another ladder, but Jones was weak. A lull in the gunfire may have resulted from Dumas's proximity to the police. Jones's bloodied, scraped arms could not mask the burgeoning shoulder pain. At the top of the ladder, through the haze, within the headlights' glare, police officers formed a ring over the highway far below. He rotated his body slowly, left arm dangling as he dropped step by step toward the next series of catwalks. A clear, amplified voice shot skyward. Mick, this bridge is sealed. Surrender your weapons now. Jones placed his foot on the lower grid, but he slipped against the rails and smacked the back of his head. He lay stunned for some time as the cop on the megaphone repeated his message. The fog wisp raced by the bridge's white lights along the upper beams. He was not sure how Mick had reached the upper levels without climbing the pylon stairway. The vacant catwalk stitched a perilous course through the fog and the top beams, and stars now appeared between the breaks in the clouds. His body numb and mobility severely inhibited, Jones's eyes hung heavy as he peered over the rails into the red and blue fog patches below. The catwalk followed a terrace pattern connected by the ladders down the sidewalk into the haze. Laying on the grid could prove fatal unless they sent the SWAT teams up the catwalks. Now he found it difficult to move his battered body. A steady drip of water from the upper beams prompted him onward. He rocked his body, constantly compressing his salty eyes. Men in camouflage uniforms wielding automatic weapons now assaulted the lower catwalks, but he was not sure whether they had spotted him through the blowing haze, nor did he wish to make himself a target by calling out. He reached the ladder and saw five men checking the upper beams from the catwalk several levels below. His lungs moved up and down, but his arm hung over the top ladder rungs. Another shot hit the ladder rail just below. He grit his teeth, but he couldn't move. The SWAT team members ducked behind beams as three more shots bounced bullets around the girders near him. The clearing fog patches revealed a dozen cruisers and officers on one knee with rifles pointed upward. Mick fired again. Goosebumps cut a quick swath up Jones's arm as a bullet whooshed by his head. Several officers ran from the cruisers as Bernice shouted hysterically from the passing lane. Rex trotted by her side as the officers closed in, but the dog stopped and tilted his head. She was quickly brought into the middle cruiser, but the dog darted across the highway. He broke into an incredible trot along the highway, slowing near the concrete pylon and the light tower center bridge. He scampered up a few stairs to the next level. Jones spotted Mick with his gun raised at an angle. Rex continued up the stairs above Mick and launched himself into the air. Caught off guard, Mick flung the gun off the bridge. Rex tore into his arms and forced him toward the side rails. He ripped into Dumas's flesh and pinned him against the rail. Mick cried out and backed toward the first ladder. He gripped the side rails and moved up a couple of rungs before Rex clamped his teeth into his thigh. Rex then released his clamped teeth. Mick lost his footing, tethered on the edge, and careened backward. He bounced off the ladder rails and a long scream slowly faded as his gyrating body merged into the fog. Jones closed his eyes and his chin rested against the wet steel top rung. Somebody shouted and the SWAT team boots pounded and shook the upper catwalk. He sensed them coming down the ladder. Someone asked him if he was all right and he nodded his head. He remained motionless and numb as they prepared to bring him down. 
but a slight smile moved up his sweaty cheek as Rex sat proudly on the outer landing and gazed upward at the stars shining through the arched steel structure. Funeral march for the maestro. Epilogue. He never thought he'd be well enough to coach football. The week after being shot, he was on his feet but unable to drive. Father Gallagher stepped over the copper pipes piled in Jones's hallway and opened the front door. He wore a dark shirt, pants, and adjusted his white collar as he neared the door. Jones, still wrapped in ace bandages under his blue shirt, approached the door. Gallagher was coming over to talk about the concert by the Prince William Symphony to benefit the Hamilton College Athletic Scholarships. The concert in the school's auditorium would pay a year's tuition for at least two or three students. Matthias, isn't that Lark Larson's car? No, Jim, that car was totaled on the interstate. Lark's long bomber turned the corner and slid to a stop by Jones's picket gate. Lark's silver-permed girlfriend, Flo, waved her fingers from the passenger side as Lark opened the driver's side door. The car rolled forward and Lark quickly thrust his foot against the brake as the car's bumper stopped within inches of Jones's Jeep. Then Lark shut off the engine, stepped outside, and walked around the hood. Don't worry about a thing, old boy. Jones glanced at Gallagher. Lark, I thought your car was ruined in the interstate pileup. Oh, just a few minor cuts and abrasions like yourself. Yeah, minor, right, said Gallagher. Lark reached inside his bright red blazer and pulled out a sheet of yellow lined paper. I knew I'd have it. What pray tell is that, Lark? The newspaper article you're going to write for Arnie and Bucky. Jones looked at Gallagher. I never agreed to an article. Arnie kept bugging me about it. I emphatically said no. Oh, no need to worry. Bucky wrote it up last night. He sent another copy to the Enterprise. He what? asked Jones as he read a sloppily scrawled, grammatically flawed paragraph filled with slang and a few vulgarities. Well, this is absurd. Arnie said you'd be jealous that he and Bucky figured out that dog pulled the trigger. He said the dog was mad at Nussbaum? I'm not agreeing to this. Locke reclaimed the paper. Oh, well, you can take your kudos tomorrow when they run it in the paper. Oh, where's my cell phone? I'm going to wring his neck. Bucky or Arnie, asked Gallagher, smiling. What's so funny? Gallagher poked his good shoulder. Loosen up, Matthias. Curbside service, old boy. Jones spoke out of the corner of his mouth as Locke opened the rear door. Jim. I'm not getting in that death machine. He wants to repay you for your help. Well, why doesn't he just use a 44 Magnum? Jones looked across the Lark's smooth vinyl seat. It's only a mile to the auditorium, Matthias. What could happen? Put that on my tombstone, Father. He slid inside and pushed the chrome window button. As the window hummed down, he leaned toward Gallagher. Where's the seat belt in this thing, Lark? I don't believe in seat belts if you're an A-OK -okay driver. My point exactly, he said, turning to Gallagher. Jim, happy trails, Matthias, said Gallagher as he walked down the sidewalk to his black Lincoln. Lark did not bother adjusting the wide rearview mirror. He shifted into drive. Hums like a kitten, Snookums. Jones covered his eyes as Lark cut the wheels and lurched past Gallagher. Oh, mercy. The cruiser chased Lark down Main Street, but Lark was unconcerned as he pulled into the auditorium parking lot and parked under the maple trees. Men in black tuxedos and young women in lavender dresses greeted patrons at the door 
and handed them glossy black and white programs. Wendell emerged from the cruiser and pulled up on his belt. He flipped open a pad and started writing. What are you doing, Wendell? Well, I'm writing you up. For what? I haven't done anything. Just what have I done? Wendell flipped up his sunglasses. Where do you want me to start? For one, Matthias isn't wearing a seatbelt, and neither are you and Flo. Oh, dear, said Flo, after what poor Lark has been through. Wendell winced. And you ran that red light at Main Street. Oh, I don't believe that, said Lark. Speeding 47 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. Well, we were late, said Flo, looking up. And you drove on the sidewalk, Lark. Jones opened the door and emerged into the sunlight as Lark argued with Wendell. Strickland, dressed in a light suit and striped tie, exited the lobby. Wendell, what are you doing? I'm writing him up. Strickland looked over the bomber and then stepped toward Jones. Thias, uh... There'll be no grand jury against Picada. Oh, come on, George. What is Herbert Lane, dictator now? That's not too far from the truth. Where's Lenore? Left for Europe. Great. She gave a statement saying Corbett told her to go to the conservatory that morning. That, shall we say, is that. Strickland pressed his lips. What's the matter? What's the matter? She was set up to be in there. Corbett and Mick conspired to kill Nussbaum. The evidence is there, and they're both dead. As far as Bacata, he arranged the whole thing. You don't know that. I agree Corbett and Mick conspired to kill Nussbaum. The rest may never be known, but I have some good news. Oh, really? What's that? Sid Smoltz. He's buying a cottage on the Pequonicut, said Strickland, waiting for Jones's reaction. That's good news? Jones shook his head as Gallagher's long, shiny Lincoln slowed at the corner and pulled next to Lark's bomber. Gallagher's driver's side window went down. Evening, George. Good evening, Father. And Matthias, you made it here one piece. You took your time, Jim. Gallagher nodded with an odd grin. Oh, I went the long way around town. I didn't want any mid-air collisions. Gallagher pushed up the window and shut off the engine. He got out and locked the car with the high-pitched remote on his keychain. Lark still argued with Wendell as Sid Smoltz moved his huge frame across the lot. Wendell turned and Sid ripped the ticket from Wendell's hand. I'll take that, boy. We'll fight this in court. I don't want any harassment, is that clear? Hey, he broke the law. Are you feeling all right, Lark? You need to go to the hospital? Are you being harassed? Jones rolled his eyes as they climbed the steps. They were greeted at the door and escorted through the lobby. The young man in the tuxedo brought them down the side aisle. The orchestra was in place, tuning up their instruments. And with a compressed smile, Bernice nodded at Jones and moved up to the center microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, before our program begins, I would like to dedicate this performance. I know that my father would want the music to continue... We still have several of his works this evening, but before our guest conductor, Professor William Shears, comes out, I would like to welcome our two presenters for the Award for Meritorious Conduct. I'm getting an award? asked Jones. Well, I wasn't aware of that. Gallagher shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I know, I know, mum's the word, said Jones as he sat up. From behind the kettle drums, Bucky Driscoll and Arnie Dewis, both dressed in light blue tuxedos, walked on stage 
carrying a wrap box with a red bow. Hey, they're going all out with this present. Bucky moved up to the microphone, but mumbled quickly and inaudibly. Yeah, uh, I guess, uh, I'm going to, uh, well, you know, uh, first, before I... Arnie yanked the microphone away and produced a loud feedback, and his annoying voice blasted through the side speakers. Hey, they ain't gonna hear you if you don't speak up there, Buck. Arnie thrust the microphone back, knocking Bucky's arm. Bucky's voice was higher. Ah, thank you there, Arnie. As an officer of the law... Well, that's being liberal, said Strickland. I was aware of uh, said crime in the conservatory of this campus. At 900 hours on the 14th, this officer was working the day shift. He spotted trouble. Arnie fidgeted as if he needed a cigarette. Just get to the award, will ya? Oh, yeah. This award recognizes courage under fire, bravery without regard for his own life. Arnie grabbed the microphone again. Now I'd like to introduce the recipient of the Town of Hamilton Award of Valor. Jones placed his good hand on the chair rail and stood. He moved into the aisle but froze when Arnie produced a shrill whistle. From behind the curtain, Rex ran across the stage. Bernice walked behind and told him to sit. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. Tough luck, Matthias, said Strickland. I guess you need to learn how to sit. Gallagher let out a laugh and Jones pointed. Arnie jumped back as the dog growled at him and he handed the plaque to Bernice. Looks like the dog doesn't like Arnie Dewars. You know something, Jim? I never liked Arnie Dewars. And now, the real winner, said Arnie. Matthias Jones. Oh, what a great guy that Arnie is. Jones stepped into the aisle of the auditorium. He moved down front and climbed the stairs to the stage. Bucky grumbled in Jones's ear. I knew it was Mick. I knew it. I knew it. Not that I'm bragging. Of course. When have you ever bragged, Bucky? Ten four. Arnie slapped his good shoulder. See what happens when you listen to me, Matthias? You know what I did for you? No, Arnie, I don't. But I'm sure you'll never let me forget it. Thanks so much for listening to Funeral March for the Maestro. At first, I thought training a dog to shoot a gun might be a little bit much, until I observed how dogs can be trained to do seemingly impossible things. And Rex, trained by Mick Dumas to kill his master, now brings down Mick Dumas off the Crosstown Bridge. The novel Sojourn is next on the runway. Sojourn is truly an odyssey across space and time. Presently, I'm outlining a prequel to the book called The Shanghai Incursion. Next time we begin, the saga of elite intelligence operative Captain Tom Loftus and his loyal friend and soldier, Zack, both retired in mid-21st century San Francisco. This is a story with personal attributes and concerns for the entire human race. This is Fitton, about to go off the air. Until next time, let's head out. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.